And read from Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through the end of the chapter. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his, prof- of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from our, the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear." in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our series during this Christmas this year is called Born a Child and Yet a King. This comes from the hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. It's a hymn not a lot of churches still sing. We sing kind of a revised version of it. The man who wrote it was Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley and his brother John um, founded the Methodist denomination. They're evangelists, and Charles was the hymn writer. And he had written this um, after... An encounter, he was meditating on Haggai chapter 2, verse 7. And I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. He was meditating, he was thinking on that verse, and then he also was encountering the extreme homelessness, the extreme poverty of his day, especially with orphans. So moved by this, the desire of Jesus to come back, to make things right, he wrote down these words as a prayer. Born your people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now your gracious kingdom bring. By your own eternal spirit, rule in our hearts alone, by your all-sufficient merit, raise to us your glorious throne. Amen. Wesley had adapted this into a prayer in the hymn, um, into a hymnal in 1744. Many people did not hear it um, or, or knew much about it. He had, once again, he had, he had come by this by seeing the incredible sadness and poverty of his day and that longing of, come, Lord Jesus, come. Now, of course, we should desire Jesus to come back in all times, even in the best of times. But there's something about seeing human suffering that really just rocks us. And we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. When there's, when there's a school shooting, that's often my first response. Come, Lord Jesus, come. 
When there are great tragedies, come, Lord Jesus, come. Probably one time more than others, I can remember seeing a documentary called The Girl with a New Face. It is the real-life story of Mar- Marlene Cassius. She, was a, she is a girl over in Haiti. Um, Natalie and Sophia just turned 13. She was 13 as they began their story, this documentary on Marley's case. See, Marley, when she was four years old, it became apparent that she suffered from um, fibrous dysplasia. What this does is it causes the flat bones in your face and your head to grow. And by the time she was 13, it had grown to an outrageous amount. The parents, they knew two women over in America who were native Haitians, and they asked them to come over if they could do anything for their daughter because it was getting so bad she couldn't eat. By the time she got over there, she could barely drink. She couldn't talk. The bones were pressing on her trachea, on her throat. She could barely breathe, and they were just waiting. The thing that you couldn't possibly imagine, waiting for your daughter to die. The two nurses, they... They examined her, and both of them were, were, were shocked. They were aghast because they were like, this isn't, she doesn't even look human. Those are her, their words. You couldn't see her nose. You couldn't see her jaw. Just this massive growth. You could just see her eyes just filled with misery and pain. The two nurses, they get in contact with a charity in America. They life flight her over to Miami. And there, they get in contact with the one expert in fibrodysplasia, one of the very few experts anyway. Um, The doctor there um, comes there, and they finally have this moment of hope that not only would their daughter live, but maybe even have a normal life. Her first surgery was the most dangerous one. The doctor told them to be ready, that she may not survive this surgery because the bleeding may be too in too intense as they would have to split her face open to take away this excess bone around her face. And the doctors, as they were working on little Marlene, her, her parents, who are people of faith, were praying together, singing together. Hark the herald angels sing. As we have the part, Oh, come, let us adore him. Come, let us adore him. The doctor comes in and tells them, we're, we're past the worst of it. Now we're just doing cleanup, re, redoing the face. And they, they, they burst in tears, and the mother says, How is it that you have his name? His name, he was a native Venezuelan, and his name was Jesus Gomez, or if you're a non-Spanish speaker, Jesus. And all of a sudden, hope was kindled in their hearts. Uh, this hopeless situation, all of a sudden there's hope. And they were praying, they believed, and the, and the doctor comes in, he says, God's been helping us, she is going to live. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. This was the desire of those long ago, even in, the, in their ignorance of not knowing what they were praying for. Every prayer that says, save us, is praying to King Jesus, the King of all kings. Come, thou long-expectant Jesus. As we go into the song of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, he draws from their covenants of old, their desires of old, of times where they have undergone incredible suffering and that desire, when will the king come? When will this promised king be here? Save us, Lord Jesus. 
Today we are looking at Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, his song of praise. In verse 72, he talks about what had been made of old, a promise being made to their fathers, a covenant and an oath. What is a covenant? It's a promise of a true of a true king. But the promise didn't start with Zechariah. Before him was the prophets during the exile. The exile is where the Old Testament ends. The people of God, the Jews, they were conquered by a foreign enemy. And the time of misery was theirs. In Psalm 137, verse 1, By the waters of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. I think every person who is in a time of suffering, a time of depression, they've been there. The time where he feels like you are exiled of everything you've ever known, and you don't know what the future looks like. It's dark. By the waters of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Before that time was the kings. The second king, King David, was given a promise that his descendants would sit on the throne forever, that his descendant, singular, would sit on the throne forever. This descendant would would judge justly, rule perfectly, and save completely. As you read the book of Kings, every new king, there should be a certain amount of excitement for the people who are wondering, will this be the king that was promised? Maybe it's this one, maybe it's that one. Before the kings, there was the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham had a promise. It was a promised land. But he wasn't looking for a plot of land. He was looking for the one whose author, a city whose author and finisher would be the Lord. But there would be one promised land whose author and finisher was the Lord before the patriarchs, all the way back to our first father and our first mother when they had eaten from the, knowledge, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When the fall came, innocence was lost. God makes a promise. And this promise isn't to Abraham, and isn't, isn't, sorry, isn't, to, isn't to Adam and Eve. This promise is actually to the snake. It's kind of an awesome part in the, in the fall in which he turns to the snake and tells him there will be a seed of the woman. Singular, not plural. There will be a seed of the woman. He will grow. You will bruise his heel, but he'll crush your head. The devil has a promise waiting for him. Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, would crush his head. Remember last week we talked about crowns. We talked about how kings got crowned by defeating other kings. And the ancient Near East, one way they would conquer that other king is they'd put their foot on their neck. Jesus Christ puts his foot on the enemy's head. This promise. Today, as we look at Zechariah, the father father of John the Baptist, we look at this song of praise he has. And this song of praise goes all the way back to Genesis. During, before Zechariah's time, it was a time of silence. Between the Old and the New Testament, it was about 400 years. And in those 400 years, there is not one prophet, there's not one recognized by the Scripture miracle. For 400 years, they had silence, wondering, does our God still hear us? It's during this time do you have the, exen- the events of Hanukkah. And you should have been in Sunday school last week and this week. I went through Hanukkah. And I talked about the one miracle during Hanukkah. Whether or not it's a miracle or not, we don't don't really know. But we know for eight days, oil that should have only lasted one day 
stayed, made, made the menorah stay lit because they were so desperate for any sign that God was still with us, that God still hears us. So 400 years of silence, they try their own dynasty, something called the Hasmonean dynasty. Certain Jewish rulers, there was a Jewish sovereign state in the ancient Near East during this time, and they had ruler after ruler, and then finally, after civil war after civil war, they lose this Hasmonean dynasty. And in the words of Jewish historian Josephus, because two brothers could not get along, we lost our liberty and our freedom to Rome. It was still an age of silence. And then comes Zechariah. At the beginning of Luke chapter 1, he is serving in the temple. He's a priest. He's not one of the high priests. He's not one of the other Escalon. He's just kind of a normal guy. He's a descendant of Aaron, and he is serving because it is his time. And all of a sudden, he has an encounter with the angel Gabriel. It's in, it's, all of a sudden, this 400 years of silence is about to come to an end. He is told he will have a son. And Zechariah, he does not respond like Mary does. Mary says, let it be unto me according to your word. He responds in unbelief. This gets Gabriel mad. You do not want to get an angel mad at you. We have pictures from the Renaissance as angels, as little naked cherubim. That's not what people experienced when they saw an angel. Angels were these insanely powerful beings and they they did mighty work but gabriel he gets mad and he tells zechariah something here now this is something that i mean i've read the story many times so have you i'm sure and this last uh, on december 1st i started with chapter one of luke something i think everyone should do read a chapter of luke a day in december and by the time for christmas to roll around you'll have read throughout the life death and resurrection of jesus christ you'll know the reason for the season so I'm reading chapter one, I get to this part, and I had a little chill up my spine because Gabriel is like, wait a second here. You want to doubt what my God can do? Do you know who you're talking to, buddy? So he says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter six, the prophet Isaiah, he says he sees the Lord seated high on the throne and above him were cherubim, uh, not cherubim, seraphim. Seraphim means burning ones. These are angels. They have six wings. With two, they're covering their feet. Two, they are flying. And these great, amazing burning ones, with two, they are covering their faces because they cannot look intently into the face of God. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. You want to tell me you can't have a kid in your old age? Do you know who I stand in the presence of? Let me go on with this quote here. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring to you this good news. He then tells Zechariah that he will not be able to speak until he sees these things take place. What a time where you can say, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. And this angel has the power to make sure that that is the case. He is the first in 400 years to receive a message from the Lord. And he can't say anything about it. In this section we read today, 400 years and nine months of silence is broken with these words, Bless the, blessed be the Lord. In his song of praise, in the song of blessing, Zechariah, he is going to talk about the three covenants of old. The three covenants of the Old Testament 
that are completed in Jesus Christ. And he doesn't even know about Jesus really fully yet. But he knows, hey, if my son is his forerunner, he's coming. And all of the hopes, all of the fears, all of the secret whispers of every nation, of every person who said and who cried out, save me, will be fulfilled in this child who is to come. There are other, so he speaks of these three covenants. Covenants, some covenants were conditional. Like when they entered the promised land, God told them through Moses that if they would not go after other gods, he would bless them. Unfortunately, they proved that they couldn't handle that promise. They did not fulfill their end of the deal. Calamity was theirs. But there's unconditional covenants as well. After the great flood, after the great flood, we have the rainbow, which is a sign of the covenant God makes with all of the earth that he would not destroy the world with another flood. The three covenants Zechariah will mention in his song of praise as we go through it today is the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and the new covenant. If you'll open your Bibles, hopefully you have your Bibles open. We're in Luke chapter 1, verses 68 through 79. I'm going to be going verse by verse. This is the way I preach, because I preach God's word. I don't preach my thoughts, my ideas. We go where the scripture goes. The first covenant in verses 68 through 71 is the Davidic covenant or the covenant given to David. This is known in church history as a Benedictus. This is the second song in Luke chapter 1. The first is Mary's song, which we call the Magnificent. This one is called the, the Benedictus because it is the Latin translation of the Greek that means to bless. At the end of service, I, I speak a blessing over you. It's called a bene, benediction. This was the Benedictus, because it's his song of praise. I was thinking about as we read this together, I'd sing this to you, but I decided not to. So, which is good for you. Um, this is the Benedictus. It's his song of praise. So, earlier on in chapter, in chapter 1, when he gets his voice back to him, it kind of frightens the people. And then we find out in verses 68 through 79 what he actually sang during that, during that moment. So filled with joy he was. So in verse 67, 68, sorry. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. The house of his servant David. That is covenant language. Because God spoke a covenant, made a covenant, a promise, an oath with King David, the second king of Israel. His verse references to the promise that God made to David. That's what, that's what that bit about the house of David means. Many were calling Jesus when he grew up the son of David. This is also a line, this is also a line in line with the oath that God had made to David. Zechariah talks about the horn of salvation. This is a common metaphor used in the Bible, also used in the ancient Near East. When it comes to the animal kingdom, animals with horns are kind of dangerous. Having been to Africa, I can tell you nobody messes around with the rhinos and with the elephants. Like, we, we were on safari, and we came between, like, me and, like, the bottom of the stage between two lions. My guides, they weren't concerned at all. I wanted to go out and pet them because I like cats. They told me I couldn't do that. Um, but they were full. They would have been fine. Anyway, um, there's one animal, though, we're like, hey, can we go by those elephants? 
And our guides told us, no, we don't go by the elephants unless we have a means of escape. And I'm like, really? Because in my mind, because of cartoons and stuff here in America, they're all wise. And I think they're British or something because of that cartoon. Anyway, um, they're like, no, they're dangerous. They're, they're, the few an- they're the, one of the few animals without provocation might come after you. When we got home back to the United States, I found a video of uh, them getting, of a tour getting way too close to an elephant. He was chasing them down. He has his two big tusk horns knocking their tour bus up and down. So I'm glad we didn't do that. When Zechariah, he talks about how, how God will raise up a horn of salvation. This is the metaphor saying it is powerful. It is active. It is not passive. God does what he sets out to do. And what does he set out to do? We can read about the promise here first in 2 Samuel, verse, chapter 7, verses 12 through 15. This is the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 12 through 15. The Lord speaking to King David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring. Notice that is singular, not plural. Your offspring. After you, after you shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. This promise is much bigger than what it looks like on the surface. The New Testament writers will pick apart this promise and talk about how this, this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. A person maybe immediately thinks of Solomon who builds the temple of the Lord, but his kingdom is not an everlasting kingdom. No, his kingdom is divided in his time. And what do you do about this promise once they enter the exile and there are no kings? There's a king who is promised, a king who is expected. There's this expectation of kings. I don't know if you've ever read the books of First and Second Kings. I still to this day remember the first time I read through First and Second Kings. I think I had the kind of anticipation that people in the time of kings had. Maybe not quite to that level. So God makes a promise to King David that he would have from his offspring a king who will rule forever. But every king after him is a disappointment. Some are worse than others. But every king ultimately fails. Every king ultimately dies and is buried with his fathers. I remember once again reading through 1 and 2 Kings, and I'd come to the new king, and I'd be like, please be a good guy. And then I'd read, and it's like, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. I was like, no, not again. And he lived like half an hour or something like that. There was this expectation that one day there would be a king who would save his people, who would be a shepherd instead of a tyrant. So every new king, you would have this expectation that now the king and the kingdom has come, but everyone was a failure. And then Assyria, then Babylon rolls in, and the, king, the line of kings seems to be broken. See, we don't want, but we need this king. C.S. Lewis said, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. 
People know they need a king. They just don't want Jesus to be their king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 5 through 7, this is after the time of Judges. And at the end of Judges, you have probably one of the most blood-curdling lines that you'll read in the Scripture. And it says this, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Something's about to go down. One of the most heinous stories you'll find in Scripture is right after that. After the book of Judges, you get into Samuel. And Samuel does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. But the people want a king. And that is where we come to in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 5-7. through 7. And said to him, Behold, you are young. This is the people speaking to Samuel. Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel, and they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but have rejected me from being king over them. In the book of Judges, I want you to understand this. Every person had land granted to them by God. And every person did what was right in their own eyes as, as long as they were close to the Lord. But the moment they departed from the Lord, things got bad. That's the dream of America. I don't know if you know this or not. But the dream of America, when our founding fathers built this country, the idea was that every person is in charge of themselves as they are in a servant to the Lord. And many of our founding fathers says a democratic republic, representative republic, it doesn't work if you don't have a moral populace. So maybe we look at the people of Israel and we think, how could they, how could they throw all that away? How could they desire a tyrant to come over them and not the Lord? Well, we have the benefit that we haven't been around as long as they have. We already start, we're already having problems in this nation of people wanting tyrants. People wanting to give away their sovereignty instead of the Lord being their king for someone else to be their king. This comes to a very terrible head as we see into the heart of sinful man in John chapter 19, verse 15. This is the trial of Jesus. And Pilate said, and they, in verse 15, and they cry out, away with him, speaking of Jesus, crucify him. And Pilate said to, him, to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answer, we have no king but Caesar. It is the same today. The unbelieving world still says we have no king but Caesar. Morally and ethically, this is done when we decide what is right or wrong based on what we feel. Based on everything else other than the scriptures, we say this is right, this is wrong. You know what we're really saying? We have no king but Caesar, and we will not have this man as our king. Should not a people inquire of their God? How about politics? Don't go there, Pastor Jason. We have separation of church and state. Does Jesus get to be king over your politics, over the way you vote? How about money? Does Jesus get to decide where your money goes, where your heart is, where your treasure is? That's where your heart is. How about sex? That's a big topic in our country, right? Does Jesus get to decide how sex should be employed to honor and glorify God the Father? Or do we get to decide? Do we get to say, I will not have him as my king over my, over my sexuality? I have no king but Caesar myself. 
How about over social media? Now I've gone and done it. God sees what you post. A friend of mine posted last, uh, I think it was a week or two ago, how they were just kind of done with social media because people are just so mean to each other. They say things, they post things on your wall they'd never say to you in person. So many friendships, so many families have been broken up over these things. You know why? Because once we get behind the keyboard, we say, we have no king but Caesar. So many teachers are coming out of the woodwork telling us that the Bible doesn't have anything to say about all of these areas. We might as well say, we have no king but Caesar, and give us a king to judge us. Just not the Lord. None of these tin pot kings can judge righteously or serve flawlessly or rule eternally. But there is a king who saves. Zechariah sings in verse 71 that we should, that we should be saved from our enemies and the hand of all those who hate us. That's what people wanted through a king is they wanted safety, they wanted security, they wanted salvation. He sees the boy who is about to be born. He is that king. Not because the greatest... Oh, are you, like, going to refill my water? Oh, you are amazing. Thank you so much, Jeb. I always need a lot of water while I preach. That's why nobody sits in the front row. I must spit a lot. (laughs) Zechariah sings in verse 71 that we should be saved from our enemies. What enemies? Is this only for them in their time because they have the Roman government with their thumb pressed on them? No, the greatest enemy is not political. It's not physical. It's our own sin. We have three mortal enemies. We have the devil, of course, who tempts us. We have the the philosophy of this world. We have our own sinful nature. The greatest enemy is and will always be sin. Your sinful nature, the devil who tempts you, the philosophy of this world that commands your conformity. This child, this king, is the only savior, conqueror, and true king. He is the promise God made to David, now fulfilled. As Zechariah keeps singing in verse in verse 72, he, he outlines the Abrahamic covenant, the promise spoken to Abraham. This is a promise, it's an oath, and it's a covenant. In verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to, a, to, our, to our father Abraham to grant us, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Zechariah describes it this way, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember the holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. This is the Abrahamic covenant. Thanks so much. Zechariah says it's a covenant of mercy. When it comes to the Mosaic covenant, that's where the law comes in. But the covenant of mercy and of grace came before the law. The covenant of the law tells us that we need mercy and grace because we can't keep. It's a conditional covenant, the law. Keep the law and you'll be blameless before the Lord. But we cannot keep the law, so we need the covenant of mercy. This covenant is first spoken to Abraham Abram, in, verse, in verse 1 through 3 of Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and make... And, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. 
And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all families of the earth will be blessed. This was only the beginning of God's promises to Abraham, though, because the Lord will go on in chapter 15, verse 5, to say, And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to, the, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 6 blows the lid off of every religion on the face of the earth. Every religion on the face of the earth says, do these things, and the God, goddess, gods, universe, prince, you know, from the band, they'll bless you. Don't do them, they'll curse you. But Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That salvation is by faith, and faith by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The mercy promised and established by this oath, by this covenant, precedes the promise he made to David or to Moses. In it, we see that God does, does for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Abraham was childless in his old age, and God gave him a son. Not just that, the promise was that his children would be, would be more than the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore, such a tongue twister, a number beyond counting. In this little babe in the manger, the hope and promise was made good. The covenant isn't a promise that God would bless Abraham for his good deeds. It was, that God, it was God's promise that he made to the people of Israel and that he would not fail, even though the people of Israel would fail in their end of the Mosaic covenant. This promise is a gift accepted by faith. In verse 6 of chapter 15 of Genesis, and he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Zechariah says the result of this is to serve the Lord without fear. To serve the Lord without fear. Do you know the world religions tell us to live, how to live? It's in fear. Mind your manners, or the God, gods, of the, or the universe will punish you. It is true that if you do what is good, you will be accepted but the problem is, as the scripture tells us, no one does good, no, not one. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. There's a time in our life where we had no care for the law of God. The Abrahamic covenant, though, is a promise to serve him without fear. Abraham wasn't saved or selected because he was better or more moral than anyone else, but is that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He wasn't perfect, but he was, always, he was always walking towards a, living a righteous life. And that is our life in Christ, too. It's not about perfection. It's about direction. Our life in Christ is not about perfection. It's about direction. Are you more righteous now than you were a year ago? That's an actual question with an answer. We kind of make it rhetorical and like, oh, in some ways, there's an answer to it. We serve him without fear as well. Christ kept that promise. If we serve if we serve with fear, if we're just waiting for God to get tired of us and for him to bring the hammer on us, that he's finally done with us, we've messed up too bad, then we are believing a lie. I can't wait to get back into 1 John. That was the series we were going through. We've taken this break. Because in 1 John 4.18, it's probably one of the most misquoted and taken out of context verses. But it is so powerful, and you need to hear it today. There is no fear in love. 
but perfect love casts out fear. I've heard that quoted so many times for so many things that the verse is not talking about. If you're scared of spiders, this verse isn't going to help you. It's not what the verse is talking about. I used to be afraid of spiders. Moved to a town, there was too many spiders, and I didn't care anymore. It's not what this verse is talking about. This is a quote people admit. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. If you are in Christ, you should not have a fear of punishment. If you do, it's because you're believing a lie. I pray you be perfected in love. Because the promise Zechariah was looking towards, the promise spoken to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was to serve without fear. Did you, when you were growing up, when you were in children's church, did you sing the song, Father Abraham? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right arm. I'm not going to do the whole thing this morning. Anytime I teach children's church, I guarantee you we're doing that one because I'm going to make the kids go crazy to get all that energy out. Did you ever wonder what that song's about? I mean, it's kind of weird, right? Because you're like, unless your dad literally named Abraham, you're like, my dad's not Abraham. How can I say, Father Abraham and many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. Then if you know something about the Bible, you know about Abraham, you're like, well, I'm not a Jew, so I'm not a descendant of Abraham. So how in the world am I a son of Abraham? God spoke a promise to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the sand on the seashores, numerous as the stars in the sky. And he wasn't talking just about all of those who shared the blood of Abraham. Because in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, it says this, Therefore be sure that it is in those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Then he continues in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So yes, Father Abraham had many sons and daughters. Many sons and daughters said, Father Abraham, I am one of them. Are you? Then let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, right arm. All the things. You are a living promise kept to Abraham by God our Father through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the second of the three covenants that Zechariah sings of. The third one is the new covenant. In verse 76, he begins addressing his son, John the Baptist, who'd prepare the way for, for Christ. Verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Verse 76, he addresses his newborn son. He tells John the Baptist that he will be a prophet of the Most High and that he will prepare the way of the Lord. And throughout this section, he is quoting and making reference to several Old Testament verses of the New Covenant. The New Covenant does not start in the New Testament. It's prophesied in the Old Testament. The New, Te the New Covenant is the greatest covenant because it includes the two previous covenants and all covenants made by the Lord, including 
the first covenant, which was the rain, which was the covenant he made to the serpent, which is that the seed of the woman would crush his head. All the promises of God are kept in this new covenant and so many more. This covenant re- represents prayer requests that nobody would dare pray. Nobody would dare pray what God has accomplished in the salvation of Jesus Christ for our souls. If we go back to the Old Testament, to the Psalms, the Psalm of repentance of David after he had messed up so bad, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You know what he didn't pray? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and take my filthy heart and put it on your son. Not dare before the throne of God to make such a request, but God grants it. Because that is how you create a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit. And the sins of David were laid upon his seed who would sit on his throne forever. This is the greatest covenant. All the promises of God are kept in this and is most clearly stated in Jeremiah chapter 31 through 30, um, chapter 31, verse 31 through 34. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 through 34. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a good husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Stop right there. In Hosea, the prophet Hosea is told to name his children certain things. And one of their names was, not my people, and no love. Because they're no longer my people. But in Hosea it says, those who are not called my people will be my people. Then in Zechariah, I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities and their sin, and I will remember them no more. The ultimate fulfillment of the new covenant is in eternity, with the new heavens and the new Jerusalem. No one will say, Know the Lord, I will not be teaching you in heaven. Sorry. I won't be your pastor in heaven because you will know the Lord as you are fully known. This is the new covenant. Who would dare pray such a thing? But God freely gives. John the Baptist, he was a special prophet. His father's words were true. Jesus said to him that he went, that he went out in the spirit and power of Elijah John said his role was to prepare the way for Jesus. In this, he fulfilled the prophecies of Malachi and of Isaiah. Specifically, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
The new covenant, which is expressed in verses 78 and 79 that I read for you, are quotes and references to several Old Testament prophecies of the promised King, Messiah, and Savior. A child would be born, a son given. Malachi 4.2 says this, But for you who revere my name, the S-U-N of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise and shine, for the light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Then Isaiah 9, 2. He's almost quoting this directly in his song. But 9, 2 says this. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness... A light has come. If we continue reading on in chapter 9 of Isaiah, we, we come to understand the light that Zechariah is mentioning of those who are sitting in darkness in the valley of the shadow of death, what this light is. For if we continue to read in verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The promised king of all the nations is here. He's here. He was born. He lived. He died. He was resurrected, and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Worship team, would you come up at this time? When I started this, I talked about how people, they need a king, but they don't want Jesus as their king. Maybe while I was going through these verses, you realize that maybe you, that maybe you had a religious experience when you were younger, but you'd say, gee, I have not had Jesus as my king. In fact, oftentimes I've been more like, I have no king but myself. But while I was preaching, the Holy Spirit did such a work in your heart where you are eagerly desiring for Jesus to be your king. That you don't need to wait for a promised king. The king is here. Today is the day of salvation. Today, call out to him and he will hear you. And you will know him as your king, this promised king. You've been trying to be king of your own life. Now you realize that you cannot save or rule yourself. No, Jesus is your king today. In the time of Christ, there were several men from the east who came. We call them the Magi or the, the three kings. And they come following the star. And they stop in Jerusalem because they don't know specifically where Messiah, where the king will be born. So they ask the people of Israel, they ask the people in Jerusalem, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the Pharisees. They ask them, where will this king be born? And they know where he'll be born, Bethlehem. And they are telling them, we see the signs of the times. He's about to be born. And they, make their, they go on their way. And you know who goes with them? Nobody. Nobody goes with them. And they all miss Christmas together. That's, that's really sad, of course. Because they continue to this day. There are those who are still waiting for the Messiah to come. But he's already come. He's already here. The promise is here. It's sad so many people to crying out, God, save me. He's here and he says, I am. He answers with his very name. 
You know, it's sad is to know this, to believe this, but through suffering, through depression, through circumstances, to momentarily forget this. The first human being other than Mary, the mother of Jesus herself, to recognize who Jesus was, was John the Baptist. He was in the womb and he jumped for joy when he came upon the unborn Christ. He jumps for joy. He grows up. He's in the wilderness. He's preaching to people. He's calling Pharisees brood of vipers. He's baptizing people. And because he stands for righteousness, he gets imprisoned. And he's sitting in prison. You know, he's probably very defiant, but as the days stretch into weeks, how come Jesus isn't freeing the captive yet? I, I know I said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but right now, all I can see is the prison bars. And of course, we know, he didn't know, that because this girl dances in scantily clad clothing, he loses his head. So he sends his disciples to Jesus, and he says to ask him, are you the one we are waiting for, or should we look for another? Have you ever been there? You know the promises of the Lord. You are saved. You're on the path of righteousness, but everything seems to be falling apart. And you, you cry out to God, are you the one or should I wait for another? Dear faithful of the Lord, the Lord speaks to you the same thing he said to John. Look at what's happening. Blessed are those who believe and do not doubt. It's a very tender way of saying Look up to the cross. Look up to the empty cross. He's not on it. He's at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. He does care. You're not in an age of silence. The age of silence was broken. The Holy Spirit is within you. He's ministering to you right now, even in the times of the lowest point. Christmas time, unfortunately, is the time where many people's addictions, anxieties, are cranked up to 11. And many are tempted, like John the Baptist, to say to the Lord, are you the one or should I wait for another? We know that's untrue. We know in every fiber of being that's untrue, but sometimes emotion speaks, our flesh speaks a, a word that is not true. And we have to drown it in the truth of the Lord. He sees me. He knows me. I hear his voice because I am his true sheep. Worship team, would you, would you lead us in our final song?